0: I'm Amy Blackthorne, and this is Blackthorne Grove. Hi, I'm Amy Blackthorn, and this is the Blackthorne Grove, a podcast where a witchcraft meets with good friends over tea to talk about the nature of magic and community. Today, I'll be talking with B.J. Sweeney. The new book, Luminarium, The grimoire for Cunning Conjuration, presents a system of conjuration and spirit-driven spellwork that allows the magician to begin the conjuration practice with very little preparation. It uses techniques from various meditation systems, voodoo, Catholicism, and Greek Orthodoxy, to give the magicians an opportunity and options to quickly tap into benefits similar to those attained through longer spiritual training regimens or through ascetic preparations in the grimoires that you can prep for a couple days. You can go right into the conjuring. So welcome, BJ.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to chat with some really fantastic people through the podcast, and I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you. Uh, So why don't you tell our listeners about the beginnings of your magical journey? Well,
1: I started interested in magic at a very young age from basically as early as I knew what the idea of wishing for things was that was what I wished for was to, to learn magic and to be a magician. And like my dad would take me to wishing wells or teach me to wish on stars or on uh, milkweed and things like that. And so as a kid, I started trying to figure out magic from uh, talking to spirits that I would encounter in nature. And then uh, once I got around when I was finishing elementary school, Uh, My dad started buying me some magic books. I started exploring from books, mostly kind of your standard fare, neo-pagan magic traditions. And then got a little bit into Celtic Reconstructionism in high school. And at the same time, started exploring ceremonial magic and was involved in those two modalities for a good long while. Eventually started looking at more historical traditions of magic, uh, studying the grimoires, uh, studying more folk magic and historical witchcraft, and things along those lines. And that's kind of been where I've settled.
0: That's fantastic. Um, The individual traditions that are chatted about in your book, how much experience did you have in each of those systems to integrate it so seamlessly?
1: Well, for the, the main ritual system that the book is teaching, it draws on several texts which have slightly variant uh, traditional models around them. Uh, the Greek magical Papyri, the Higramantia, and the heptameron are the main sources for the main uh, ritual system. And I've worked with those various systems for several years both with working with individual pieces uh, from from those sets of material, as well as working with combining them with other ritual formats in order to make something that was a little bit more workable. And so I've, uh, I've actually sort of prototype ran something that is based on the same model that was used for this in some previous group workings a couple years ago and have worked Pretty much from that kind of system since then.
0: That's fantastic. the The PGM is one of my pet interests that I I just find it so fascinating digging into it and sort of teasing out the, the pieces of yarn in my brain.
1: <laughs> as far as uh, some of the the preparation stuff in there, that's a broader mix. Uh, so there's some meditation traditions. Uh, some of them are drawn from different sources. So there's like a form of pranayama, a form of vipassana, um, a form of walking meditation. And most of those are things that I was introduced to in high school. And so I've been doing variants of those for for several years. The, the way that I present them in the book is kind of simplified and not as in-depth as some of the traditional forms of those and recommends that people are looking for more then they can go check out those traditions themselves. But for the purposes of what it's trying to do in the book, these simplified versions will work. Then it draws on some elements from Catholic mystical tradition, uh, which is something that I've been exposed to pretty much my whole life. Uh, The things that it draws from Greek Orthodoxy are things that I've had sort of a background awareness of, but have been less immersed in. And then it incorporates some basic magical prayers like the the Headless Invocation from the PGM. Uh, There's a prayer from uh, Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott. And then the various Orphic hymns and the Heptamer prayers are presented for part of the preparation as well, uh, along with a few other things and some Hecatean work. And so most of those things are things that I have several years of working with.
0: I absolutely love it. Have you gotten a chance to see Sarah Masters' work?
1: Uh, I've seen some of the things that she was posting as she was putting together her Orphic Hymns grimoire Mm -hmm. and have seen the things that have been posted on the page from that. And as she's sort of recommended practical things to people drawing on it, I've seen those posts. I haven't had a chance to check out the book itself yet. Um, right as she was working on that and right before Patrick Dunn came out with his Orphic Hymns translation I had recently gotten the new uh, popular academic translation and was kind of settled that that's what I was going to stick with for Orphic Hymns. but I'm excited to look at both of their translations at some point
0: Absolutely uh, Primary sources are, are what I work with for the magical work itself but I love seeing what people create out of their original pieces, what what comes out of their research. So, a Living Spirit's A Guide to Magic in a World of Spirits was the previously released book. Uh, was that helpful in any way in writing that? Did it help pave the way for your current work or well, are I, they related in any way?
1: Writing that had kind of an interesting impact on my work That had started as a series of blog posts to introduce people to various types of spirit magic, and then talking with Rufus Opus kind of got me thinking about how those various forms of spirit magic interact with each other into a singular form, and looking at my own practice and how my own practice drew together pieces of those various forms of spirit magic into a more singular practice. And as Living Spirits took shape as a book, it started to focus more around that holistic approach of saying, okay, well, there's nature spirits, there's there's fairies, there's elementals, there's aerial spirits, there's angels, there's Olympic spirits, there's gods, there's all these different types of spirits that make up the world. And the world is this living organism that is its own individual pieces, but is also this entire ecology of human spirits and non-human spirits and each spirit in that system makes a part of what the existence, part of what our experience is. And so when we're doing magic, and not even just when we're doing magic, but just living in general, we have to take account for that and how we interact with all of those parts or as many of those parts as make sense at a given time. And so starting to look at it that way in a more holistic spirit life kind of approach that mm-hmm. it sort of influence a lot for what came about with luminarium luminarium uses that approach in order to shortcut and simplify a lot of what's there in spirit conjuration like in traditional spirit conjuration there's a lot of really intense tools that have to be built there's a lot of intense purification a lot of time that's spent on the purification and You need to create tools in order to prepare the other tools so that you're using consecrated tools to make the main tools. And and it gets very circular and very intense and it's doable, but you have to really lay out what you're doing and take some time with it. And for a lot of people that can be off-putting and a lot of people that seem for them, it will seem insurmountable. And if we work in a more spirit leveraged context where we're working with our ancestors, we're working with other spirit allies that we develop, then those spirits can help facilitate our spirit work and conjuration and make it something that's simpler and more accessible where we don't need as many different material things. And if you look back to the earlier grimoires and if you look back to the magical papyri, we can kind of see that in those, that they're not nearly as cumbersome as some of the later grimoires after Protestantism removes a lot of the spirituality of Catholicism from the Grimoires and even with Catholicism after it adds all this high church material on top of what was happening in earlier Greek forms of magic. And so as we start to look back to those and start to look at the fact that those worked because there were multiple spirit perspectives being leveraged, and that was just something that the magician was immersed in then we can find ways to take these other systems and begin to rebuild those into a way that works that way as well. And that was kind of the goal of the minari
0: That is fantastic. It's, it's so funny because the, the greater pagan perspective right now is so driven. It's either I don't need any tools because all magic is in your head or I have to go out and buy everything ever. We We sort of divorce ourselves from this idea that, you need to practice and learn and study and immerse yourself so you can have the skills to throw all this other stuff away. Um, in martial arts, we, we were taught the idea that, you know, your, your belt system is your, your high school. i getting a black belt and going off and is your now journey on your own to figure out where you want to go and how you want to incorporate the materials that you've learned, but you can't skip from, I don't know anything to telling yourself, you know, everything and you don't need anything. It's fabulous to try and figure out where people are building those skills.
1: Yeah, and I think part of it is that when we start having a spirit driven approach and whether we're looking at an overall concourse of spiritual forces or if we're looking at simply a perspective of working with gods, either way we need to talk to those spirits and we need to learn from those spirits, what it is that they want and what tools we need to work with them. And if we come into it with this preconceived notion of, well, I have to use these tools because this is what this book said, or I don't need any tools because I just don't need them at all. Then it's kind of like going to a dinner party and not being concerned with what the dress code for the dinner party is. You you might be able to go, but it might be really awkward.
0: That is fantastic. So of the, we'll, we'll stay, we'll see with the PGM. Is there any magical system that you can see allowing someone to attain some of those base skills? Yeah, there's, there's been a resurgence in groups just solely focused on PGM, but they sort of walk in and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here. But they showed up to the dinner party naked instead of even making an attempt to figure out what the dress code is.
1: Well, I have, I myself came up through using the, the AA system and I've been an OTO initiate for several years. And so my background very much had programmed into it that you have to go through all of this cabalistic learning and learn all of these colors and shapes and tools and, and rituals before you can even begin starting to look at any of the historical magic. And There's so much of that in, in those systems where people get stuck in just that system of preparation itself as if that's the, the be-all and the end-all and don't even think about using it as a way to get back to these earlier systems. And The more I've started exploring these earlier systems, the more I see that while, yes, there are some things that can be fundamentally useful in a lot of these more contemporary systems that train us to do this that sometimes just digging in and working with the spirits directly is maybe a better way to get started. And I think with that, for something like the PGM where it can have some pretty intense rituals in there, like there's some, some very interesting and visceral and potentially dangerous approaches to understanding some of the spirits and some of the gods that are called upon in there. And we need to be prepared for how to work with those. And I think just sort of walking in blind and doing some of these, these conjurations that are there where we're calling on some of the, the very dark versions of Hecate and various goddesses that are, are syncretized to her, that that can be a lot for someone to take on when they haven't done anything else before. Um, But working with other spirits and making other friends and allies in the spirit world can be a way of preparing ourselves for that. So I think systems of ancestor work are a really useful place to get started. Working with the elemental spirits is a really useful place to get started. Moving up from there into maybe working with the Olympic spirits or working with nature spirits, then that can be sort of a way to progress through simple forms of spirit work in order to then go into these other systems. But even with jumping into something like the magical papyri, where if we have a background in spirit work, we're still going to need some background in the overall context of that system in order to understand some of the things that it's telling us to do. So while the world of the Greek magical papyri is not the same world described by Hesiod or by Homer, having some awareness of those stories is useful, but perhaps more so having an awareness of Orphic traditions, uh, having an awareness of Dionysianism, uh, those sorts of systems where we deal with some of the more wild and unbridled versions of the gods and where we deal with some of the more Chthonic spirits and the underworld presence that can be a good gateway to that, and I wouldn't want to assert that historically the Orphio were going around doing their initiations, and then people were doing the sorcery of the magical papyri. Because again, those are still somewhat historically disparate things that weren't necessarily occurring in exactly the same parts of the Mediterranean, but. I do envision that there was probably some sort of overlap of something similar, something along the lines of those mystery traditions and some of those mystery tradition initiations likely introduced people to some of the concepts involved in the spirit magic and involved in the necromancy that is involved in in some of the rituals in the magical papyri. Even within the papyri itself, there are rituals that are more initiatory and rituals that are more developmental. They can be used for people that are sort of starting out Uh, There's the the Mithras liturgy that has sort of famously been, been titled that because of a reference to Mithras in it, but likely has very little to do with Mithraism. But it presents a system for elevating the individual up into the world of the gods and the world of the spirits and causing the person to appear to be like them so that they're accepted amongst the spirits and amongst the gods so that they won't harm them and then they're able to do work on that level. So going through those sorts of initiatic experiences that the Pyri references, or even going through other more modern initiatic experiences that give you access to the world of the dead or access to different spiritual planes and give you sort of the knowledge for how to uh, penetrate and interact with those spaces safely, then those can be things that are important, uh, maybe more so than... Learning to vibrate divine names while balancing a pot of water on her head, says <laughs> something sort of suggests we do.
0: Absolutely. And we've gotten to a point where it's gotten, it's easy to say, I had a bad experience with X groups. So I'm just going to eschew as- groups forever. But there's only really so much exactly. that you can experience in magical path working by yourself with very little outside encouragement, we'll say. So getting to the point where people have a basis to make those introductions, to make those path workings, so that way they can get to their next theological step, their next magical step. It's it's fabulous that these individual pieces are given such consideration. It sounds really incredible. I can't wait to read it.
1: And So in in the approach that I use in the book, it kind of gives the preparations a very much this is the minimum amount that you can do in order to be prepared to have the right state of mind, the right awareness, the right faculties and abilities in order to do this. And this is how you can deepen those things and take it further if you want to charge that spiritual force even more and charge that access even more. And then this is where you can look to deepen those things in these other traditions if you want to take it further than that. So it's very much a let's kickstart everything by doing. And then once you've got yourself comfortable with a mode of practice, now we can start digging deeper and go back to these original systems that it's based on and explore those more in depth, or go find other systems and explore more in depth. But we're exploring from a perspective of experience as instead of from a perspective of sitting on a chair preparing for years.
0: And that's fantastic. We could, I always recommend people just get out and read. Read everything, especially if you think that it's something you're not going to agree with, absolutely, especially read it then. Either A, you'll figure out you were wrong, and be humbled or b you you put a finer point on the things you may disagree with and you'll have a better understanding of why you feel that way but uh most people when they when they say i'm gonna i'm gonna check out this this individual path this individual study or practice that's all they that's all they you know if, if it falls outside that scope it's no longer important so being able to take on the history of those individual pieces and make something out of them is fantastic. Is there a practice? Is is there one specific thing in your personal practice that makes you feel the most magical, the most in touch, the most connected that you can be? I would
1: say in my personal practice, the, the thing that I rely on and fall back on most at this point is is ancestor work. That's, that's the main thing I do routinely. And it's, it's kind of interesting for me because it wasn't something that I was too cognizant of for a long time as I was coming up as a magician. And then once I got involved with it, it was something that seemed very accessible and very simple to do, but it also just left me with this really wonderful feeling of being safe and accepted and having spirits there to help me. And not even just necessarily having spirits there to help me, but just having someone there because you're, you're doing ancestor work, you're dealing with human persons. They're just non-bodily human persons. And so the feeling there is very clearly one of, of dealing with other people. And it was just very refreshing and very powerful. And I also found that it was a very simple way to do very effective magic and a way to tie into the rest of the magic that I was doing. And I think that became kind of the basis and the core of this perception of working with the spirit world in a way that leverages relationships with spirits in order to expand other spirit relationships, or in order to work with multiple spirits and have spirits that kind of have your back and are able to help guide that spirit interaction. And that's something that I think shows up in some of the living traditions of spirit work uh, in, Uh, South and Central America, the idea that you might have spirits that are tied to you or connected to you in a special way, and they help you navigate the other spirits that you're working with. And I find that ancestors make a lot of sense for that because they're going to have a very human perspective. They know what we need, what we don't need. They know how we need things to be. They also have kind of a sense that there's something riding on it for them because we're what's left of them in the world where something that they care about, where their attachment to, to the physical world. And so they want to see us do well. It's not like some other spirits where they're willing to help us because we build a relationship or we build an interaction with them. Ancestors already have a vested interest. And so I think that helps make them approachable and make them effective And so that's become a very comfortable space for me to work in that has really influenced a lot of my other work. And it was something where I don't think I even realized it was becoming the main part of my work as that happened. It wasn't until sort of looking at things with other people where they were like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure BJ's an, an ancestor work guy. I think that's the main thing he does. And then kind of talking with him about it and it's like, oh, yeah, I guess it really is the main sort of daily practice thing that I do now. Along the lines of that, uh, Hakate is a, a figure who I find underlies and ties together and is part of almost everything in magic for me and in my experience. And she, just like with the ancestor work, is a figure where people would Ask me about work with Hikate, and I would always be like, "Oh, I'm not one of those Hikate guys. I don't do a lot of Hikate work." And then people were coming to more public rituals that I was doing, and they were looking at rituals that I was writing for the book. They sort of pointed out, "BJ, every single ritual you do Mm -hmm. involves Hikate at least." being mentioned or honored in some way. Like she's somehow touches every single piece of magic you put together. And in my own personal ancestor work, she's also there and she's one of the spirits that I thank daily. Um, whenever I, I return home from going anywhere. And I think in her ability to be expansive and be pervasive and to reach through all areas of, of life and existence, which is very important to the way that she's described and seen in the Chaldean uh, approach to viewing her, but also just with her her name being the far away one and her being this expansive goddess that reaches out and begins in her space as the daughter of the, the stars and then from there gains regency over the three parts of the world in Greek mythology and then takes on additional regency over the underworld, that she's a goddess who is always reaching out and finding ways to to touch on to different things where she may have not been before. And once you begin to allow her into your magical life, then she kind of has that ability to sort of spread tendrils and roots out that begin to tie everything together in a very useful and positive way. Um, along with that, I view sort of a syncretism between the Blessed Virgin Mary and Hikate, And so my ancestors pointed me towards Marian spirituality uh, when I was asking them for help with something. And that's become a very constant and regular fallback for me at this point. Um, and so when I need to do something quickly or address something quickly, it's usually one of those three or or a combination of those three that I turn to, either my ancestors, Hikate or the Blessed Virgin.
0: That's fantastic. I have I've heard a few people talk about their own personal connections between Mary and Hikate and I every time I'm so struck about by the way that it my my whole chest feels lighter and warmer. Just being in the in the one of the ritual rooms in in the home is uh has both my ancestor shrine and Hecate's uh, altar space and it's the same feeling that I got visiting one of the uh, basilicas in uh, I believe it was Ohio I was on a trip and I was my, my mother was raised Catholic but I definitely wasn't we just. Went to whatever church was closest. I never expected to find a, a feeling for the Blessed Virgin. But there she was. I think
1: it's been interesting seeing how um, both Hecate has managed to spread out into the magical world in areas where she just wasn't addressed 15 years ago, even. And has become a major figure in neo-pagan systems, in traditional witchcraft, in the Grimoire revival, uh, the the PGM revival. Basically, every different area, she's finding a way to pop up. And similarly, we see that with the Blessed Vir- Blessed Virgin through uh, the Black Madonnas. That that's a way in which people are sort of reapproaching a folk understanding of the Virgin Mary and a way that she powerfully has pulled together and syncretized other goddess forms through history uh, and made them part of who she is. And if you sort of look at things as Hecate being the, the queen of, of heaven and earth and the queen of the underworld, Mary is also given those titles of the Empress of hell, the Lady of the Earth and the Queen of Heaven. And both of them have that sort of mother of the world presentation as we get to their place in kind of the, the mystical blend of things that was happening in the early part of the, the first millennium. And so it's, I think it makes a lot of sense that people are starting to recognize a link between the two of them even if there was not necessarily historically a link that can be traced. I I feel like they both occupy very similar spaces and purposes to the point where understanding that I'm definitely not someone who believes that all deities are, are one deity and that they're all just masks for a given idea. But I think the idea that Maybe there are some deities that share in a particular power or share in a particular nature, or maybe there are deities who themselves appear in different forms in different cultures because they are so important or so powerful that they simply need to be there consistently. I think there's something in that sort of space that goes on with Hecate and with the, the Blessed Virgin and with the Church of Light and Shadow, which I've, I've recently become involved with, sort of a witchcraft Catholic church, almost all the clergy have that same experience that there's some sort of connection between the two. and It's been really interesting seeing that kind of play out.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I got to experience a chat with uh, Judica Ellis after she was actually during Sacred Space maybe five years ago, maybe longer, on the Black Madonnas, and not only where their worship was found but the attitudes and the ideas about their connections to both places and the folk worship that was branching out from those individual spaces
1: yeah i think it's it's a really fascinating topic that it'll be interesting to see as what happens is more people explore it because I think it's going to be the sort of thing that that people end up exploring because it seems to be a space that those particular divine presences, those particular spirits, are kind of pushing people to towards that understanding and that experience. I think it's something that's not just some of us coming to this view as much as something where there's some spiritual movement that's that's bringing people to understand that. And so I think that's going to be one of the things that we start to see more just like how uh, at some point St. Cyprian decided he needed to be in North America, just like he was in the rest of the world. And so there was this mad rush of people discovering St. Cyprian. And the same with hecate sort of determining she's going to be all over all of magic. And so magicians everywhere start finding ways in which hecate ties into everything they do. I think there's points where spirits just sort of decide that, that it's their time or it's time for some understanding about them to happen. And so they start just making it happen and making it happen and inspire people towards it. And I think that's something that we might see with this sort of Hikate Blessed Virgin interaction.
0: Absolutely. I mean look how many epithets Hikate has in the, the PGM. I mean, from all nurturing and all powerful all the way down to worldwide. I mean the the list of epithets, the list of superlatives that apply to her there's, there's literally one for every occasion. There's, there's a way to interact with a specific aspect for whatever it is you need right now. And you find that deities have those lists. The more they spread, the more they want to be into your lives, the more finite those individual epithets become.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: Is there something in your past working that could have taken you away from your practice that you are happy to have overcome to, to come past to come through?
1: Yes, and I think that's it's it's something I've talked about a few times that there's points in our experience as magicians where we encounter things that make it very clear that magic is real and magic is powerful and that, as a result, magic can be dangerous and intense and life-changing. And I think the more magic we do, the more time we spend around magic, the more of those instances we're going to experience, but also the better we'll be at navigating them and hopefully at seeing how to approach particular magical forces and magical intentions to avoid things that are going to be huge and powerful and awe-inspiring but in a way that are potentially harmful or frightening to us it's good to have those huge powerful awe-inspiring moments but we want to make sure that we have them in ways that are not going to be damaging to ourselves or to others or at least not going to be damaging in ways that don't lead us somewhere that's ultimately where we need to be. And I've definitely had experiences like that. There was one which I won't go into exactly what the details of what it it was, but it led to me sort of pulling away from magic and public involvement in magic for a few years Uh, back around 2011 through about 2012, 2013, I mostly focused on my work as a priest and, and working as a priest in the Gnostic Catholic Church. I still did some classes around magic, some teaching, but did less of it and definitely performed a lot less involved, uh, specific magical rituals. It's one of those things where it's sort of weird having grown up with magic as part of my life for most of my life, even stepping away from it, there were still little things like talismans that I carried and used regularly and little small, uh, spells for things that would come up in day-to-day life that I would still do because it was just the reflex of how to live and how to do things. But anything major, anything like conjuring spirits or, um, trying to put together any sort of large ritual to experiment with any sort of magic. Those were things that were just sort of off the table for me for a while. And I wasn't sure if I was going to go back to it uh, because of the, the way that some things had unfolded with a particular magical manifestation. And I think sometimes it can be important to go through things like that because it can help us learn how to evaluate how we're interacting with the world. Uh, but if we can find ways to evaluate that without necessarily having to go through things like that, that can be good too. Ultimately, I ended up back where I was supposed to doing magic and, and talking about magic and teaching and writing about magic. And so I'm glad I got back to that. The next couple times I ran into sort of intense things where it was kind of like, whoa, can't believe this happened. Not sure how to, to deal with that. They were things where I was able to navigate it better navigate it better, and just sort of understand how to better approach doing the magic as opposed to, oh my gosh, I messed up and this horrible thing happened and maybe I should just not do magic. Um, but, but yes, I definitely did hit a point where that almost became a thing.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. No problem. Uh, My last question is
1: who is your favorite fictional magician? My favorite fictional magician. Uh, I was going to say that's a hard one, but I guess it's not really. It's probably Jonathan strange.
0: Fantastic. Um, I,
1: I definitely, uh, I, I definitely see some overlap between Jonathan strange and myself. Uh, the, the time in which the story takes place, uh, definitely relates to some of my magical areas of interest. Uh, Some of the questions that the story brings up about magical culture and magical society, I think are very important ones for real magicians to look at Uh, sort of the, the difference between being an actual magician, exploring magic versus being like the York society of magicians and just thinking about and talking about and theorizing about magic, which I think Mm -hmm for a long time was a large part of of several major segments of the magical community and i think we're getting to a point where people are able to move away from from that theoretical magician uh lifestyle i think there's also the juxtaposition of strange and neural as different types of practical magicians and is it something where we want to just be able to say we've done it. And so we do a few experiments and that's, that's good enough. Or is it something where magic should be magical magic should be to dream. And we want to explore and go deeper and, and find what the the limits of things are and find what things we can do. And I think that's, that's a really inspiring element of the story. I think also looking at, uh, the, the absence of fairies from, uh, modern ceremonial magic is an interesting question that that kind of holds a mirror up for us on that fairies were something that were a very regular part of grimoire magic and, and ritual magic and kind of formalized learned magic up until probably the, the 17th, 18th century. So it's, kind of puzzling that right before the golden dawn era they stop appearing as much in in texts of magic and then as you start to get a new version of formalized educated magic they're just not present at all and then eventually sort of show up again in in neo-pagan systems but they're just absent from any of these ceremonial systems but they're very much part of the heritage of what's there and i think That's something where I know when I was first exposed to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, it was a question that I had already been asking myself for several years, why that was the case. And it really pushed me to think that we need to answer that question and need to maybe address it. And I've found that there's been several other magicians who've also, since that time, kind of come to that, well, let's start looking at how we restore our, our fairy work into... Uh, ritual magic and into grimoire magic because it's clearly something that's there. So yeah, I, I think Jonathan strange is probably, probably my easy favorite. There's some, some other really good ones. Uh, Quentin and Elliot from the magicians.
0: Pretty mm-hmm. good. Uh,
1: Vincent Griffith from uh, the originals is pretty awesome. He is, uh, if there was somebody that I was, I was going to pick to be like, if I had to be a magician out there in a world full of, of monsters and magicians, he would probably be the go-to guy, but someone that I would look at for, yeah, that's a magician to look at in fiction and say, if there's a fictional figure that I want to be kind of like, probably Jonathan Strange.
0: Fantastic. You know, it just occurred to me that that timeline matches up when the Fox sisters produce their photos. I'm wondering if the, the, disuse of theories falling out of practice, so to speak. I wonder if that had anything to do with it.
1: That is interesting. It's something I hadn't thought of. I will definitely have to kind of pursue and look at that. Because it was
0: 1848, work. so it would have been right in the middle. And everything after that is sort of hanging in midair, waiting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that would have been yeah right there as some of the books that influenced the Golden Dawn and Sort of dropped fairies from their their magical approach would have been been written.
0: Well, it's been fantastic chatting with you. Yeah, uh, where can cool. our listeners find you?
1: Uh, well, the probably the easiest place to find me is Facebook. Um, I have a I have a lot of Facebook pages I manage, but sort of the main one that's kind of the clearinghouse for everything is glory of the stars which is facebook.com slash glory of the stars 56 and that's the the page for my blog but uh posts for my podcast and for uh my books get reposted to that facebook page as well um so i have uh, the blog glory of the stars the website the unveiled sky which is arita418.com and uh, podcast infinite uh, in the company of stars. And so all of those you can kind of find through that that Facebook page. I have a Twitter at reta 418 but I always forget to use it. I'm not a Twitter guy. I was just talking to someone today about how I need to teach myself to use Instagram and start using that. So for now Facebook's probably the easiest place to find me.
0: Fantastic. Is Facebook the easiest place to find your books?
1: Uh, yes, I, I post, uh, whenever I have anything coming out, it'll be posted on Facebook, uh, links to it will be on Facebook routinely. Uh, so yes, that'll, that'll be an easy place to find it. Uh, otherwise Amazon, uh, the current book is available on, on Amazon and, uh, the new one will be available there. Also, I'm also looking into, uh, possibly Barnes and Noble as another option, uh, for people, because I know some people
0: don't like to purchase through amazon and i've gotten requests for finding another venue
1: for people to purchase from
0: fantastic thank you so much for chatting with me this night evening Uh,
1: thank you for having me this was a lot of fun
0: i really enjoyed it well remember folks we're all trees in the same forest nurture each other thanks for listening remember to rate review and subscribe have a great night